So 1st of January, right? 1st of January. I wake up with my kids coming into my room, as it is every day. <laughs> and they want to know if they can see TV, because they know it's a Sunday, right? And they want breakfast. And they want to go to the bathroom, and they don't want to let me sleep, <laughs> right? And I, I mumble, you know, sure, watch TV, just close the door <laughs> when you leave the room. Uh, but the youngest, he is sick, so he wants to stay in our bed with us, not sleeping, but voicing his discontent with life. Right? So there's nothing to it. I eventually get up, and I go to the bathroom, which means that one of my kids immediately needs the bathroom as well. Right? It's, like, it's like their bowels are mystically connected to mine, just to make sure that I'll never have a moment of peace in a bathroom. It's, you know, slightly annoying, but it's not really surprising. First of January is the day we wake up, look around, and realize nothing changed. Not really. Nothing changed. And that is, of course, true of most mornings, right? It's true of most mornings. But most mornings are not preceded by fireworks and corks of sparkling wine flying up in the air in celebration of some sort of significant change. It's not like I do that every Saturday night. There's something, right? And what's that change exactly? What's that change? The change of the calendar year, sure, 2022 to 2023, but it's also everything that we have culturally, structurally, and emotionally attached to that change. All of these things that go into it, both in our emotions, but also practical stuff. You've got to do your taxes. The year's changing, right? All of these things. So it really it isn't like any other morning. All of these things that I mentioned, they have real significance on how we process and experience this new day in which we, by agreed convenience, now call a new year. It's something else. It's 2023. And plus, as we awake to this day, we are emerging from a long period of celebrations, right? of holidays, of Christmas celebrations. And for many of us, also of days off from work, right, for many of us. But now, now the Christmas food is eaten up, the New Year's wine has been drunk, the gifts are no longer novelty, and they already found their places in our cupboards or wardrobes or wherever it might be. And tomorrow is Monday. Right? We brew our morning coffee, we open the news, and pass the pictures of fireworks all over the world and the king's New Year's speech. The headlines are still about wars and crisis and the boring yet depressingly influential bureaucratic shenanigans of politics. Our troubles 
haven't really gone anywhere. They sort of rode ahead of us into the new year. And will our hope manage to keep up? New year. Nothing changed. We have just spent days of celebrating and naming our hope, haven't we? As Christians, we have celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have sung about it. We have the crib about it. We have told the stories. But as years roll by, 2,023 years from when convenience says it that Jesus was born, right? Will our hold on that faith be strong enough? Or its hold on us? Or does one more year in our calendar mean one more year away from that great revelation from God in Jesus Christ. And since then, 2,023 years, we have been asking, what now? What now? When we wake up the next morning, what has changed? I think it's a profound question, uncomfortable one maybe, but a profound question. How do we Christians break past the festivities and into the bleak roughness and normality of, well, life? Life. And it is in many senses the question of this season in the liturgical calendar as well, the calendar of the church. We're embarking in a year in which we're paying a bit more attention to this yearly cycle that many churches throughout the world go, and we're trying to be a bit aware of where we are in that. And we have left the season of Advent, which is the season of waiting, the season of expectation leading up to Christmas. And right ahead of us, in just a two weeks' time, we go into the so-called season of Epiphany. And Epiphany is the season speaking of God's revelation into the world. And squeezed in between these two seasons, the season of Advent and the season of Epiphany, we have the Sundays of the Christmas tide. And they beg the question, how does God's revelation in the Christ child go beyond the crib or the manger and into this life that seems to go rolling on, apparently oblivious to it? And as I ponder these questions every new year, I've been repeatedly finding comfort and courage in the company of old Simeon. Simeon is my coach for the marathon. Not the sprint, but the marathon, the long, grueling run. This is the third year in a row that I speak of Simeon in our New Year service. And today I'm pretty much revisiting last year's reflection. And that's kind of the point. Because Simeon's wisdom is the wisdom of hope 
when nothing seems to change. When nothing seems to change. And we hear about Simeon from St. Luke, the gospel writer. And he writes about Simeon in chapter 2 of his telling of the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, from verses 22, this is what St. Luke tells us. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So says St. Luke about old Simeon. I call him old Simeon because in my imagination, Simeon is an old man. Um, scriptures doesn't really tell us that, but it does convey this sense of a long waiting. Right? His whole life he had been waiting for this, in the way it describes him. And Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that is for God's big redemptive move. In the language of the spirituality and the cultural religious language of Israel, that meant waiting for the chosen one that would come with a new big redemptive act from God. And he knew by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. And the Messiah was the anointed one of the Lord who would be a key person in this big redemptive endeavor. And then when he meets Jesus, he basically says, okay, now I can die. So you get why I imagine him as an old man. I don't figure the 20-year-old being like, I waited my whole life, now I can die. So I imagine him as an old man. So here's someone who had been long waiting for the big change, the big redemptive act that would transform the world. And his waiting, his hope is not just his own. He is waiting for the consolation 
of Israel. We sang about this earlier today, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And these are languages of, of the spiritual and, and religious language of the Jewish people. Speaking of exile, speaking of captivity, speaking of redemption. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. It is the waiting of a whole people throughout generations. And now finally it happens. Jesus comes and Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms and celebrates. My eyes have seen your salvation, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. But here's the thing. Technically, nothing really happens. Nothing really happens. I guess part of the challenge when we're reading this story as a Christian community of faith today is that we know the whole story of Jesus that comes after this event that Luke is telling about. And we inherit a theological understanding of Jesus' story as a turning point in cosmological history. So we tend to pack all of that into this little one-week-old baby. But Simeon knows none of that story. He doesn't know what comes after. He doesn't have our thousands of years of theological understanding of this. And also, because most of us are not familiar with the Jewish costumes of the time, we don't really understand how absolutely mundane this situation is. Simeon knows. What I mean is that there's nothing peculiar or unusual at all about Joseph and Mary going to the temple with their young baby. It's what people did. It's like when you take your baby to get vaccinated in the head station. It's what people do. It's part of the drill. Right? The Jewish laws of purity, they required that after a certain number of days after the birth, both mother and child went to the temple to offer sacrifices, and they did that in order to be made ceremonially clean so that they could continue to be part of the life of the congregation. And this is something everybody did. For temple life, this is, this is Monday morning. The sacrifice that Joseph and Mary bring, the pair of doves and two young pigeons, was also the poorest version of the sacrifice. That's what you would give if you couldn't afford a lamb because you were too poor. And there's also no reason to believe that at this point in Jerusalem, anybody had heard anything about Jesus. So as far as everyone in the temple that day is concerned, Joseph and Mary are just some random poor couple bringing their young baby to the temple for the customary rites. But Simeon is also there. And on some whisper of the Spirit that moved him to go to the temple courts, and for anyone looking on, Simeon is the odd thing here. Right? Not Jesus. Simeon is this unusual thing in the temple that day because he swoops on this family, random family, takes the baby in his arms and starts praising God. The salvation of the sovereign Lord has come alight for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. And people look around, oh, okay, something's happening. You look excited for a while and then go, okay. Just the man is a bit off, I don't know. And they go back to their stuff. 
Simeon returns baby Jesus to Mary, says some weird stuff to her, and that's it. There's this old prophetess, 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 how do you say that? Anyway, in the temple, uh, a widow called Anna who picks up on the story and she starts spreading it around, but that's pretty much it. Everybody goes on with their life. People in the temple go on with their sacrifices. Joseph and Mary go back to Galilee. Simeon eventually dies. And what changed? Israel's hope and expectation for deliverance and redemption was a strong desire and an anxious waiting. Right? With roots in a formative story of deliverance that involved mighty acts on the part of God. And Israel is now a people under the domain of another empire. So what just happened? But Simeon, either by wisdom or by the wisdom of age or perhaps by some sort of special revelation of the Spirit, or I would like to think a combination of both, he is not expecting a cataclysmic time-condensed event. He's not expecting fireworks. If the fact that salvation doesn't happen on a flash and just like that surprise anyone, it does not surprise Simeon. His words for Mary, which are given very oddly in a context of blessing, like an elderly man blessing this baby and the mother, but his words to her are somber and almost Dark and heavy, right? This child is destined to cause the fall and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. These are not words announcing that everything is about to get better. If anything, Simeon is spelling trouble. And for Mary specifically, he's, he's warning her of a very rough time ahead. And I wonder how many times Mary felt as though a sword had pierced her soul and remembered Simeon. Maybe when her 12-year-old son Jesus disappeared for three days because he sneaked away in the temple. When as a grown man, he was suddenly so consumed by his ministry that he wouldn't even eat properly. And Mary and her other children didn't seem to manage to bring him to his senses. Or when he was finally nailed to a cross as a criminal. Or when after the unsurmountable joy of resurrection, he again left her in his ascension. Now Mary's story, of course, is, is her own. But the experience in the life of faith that things are finally making sense and, and changing for the better, only to be again thrown into confusion, into pain and waiting. Only to wake up the next morning and realize that it hasn't changed. That is an experience we all share. That is an experience we all share to some extent. And it's so often Seems like things might happen here and there, but the big wave of time and sorrow seems to remain unchanged and unstoppable. 
But Simeon is ready to go in peace. Think of that. Ready to go in peace because his eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Even if all that he has seen is a baby. But not just a baby. This was Emmanuel. God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And Simeon, he had the eyes to see. Of all the power of the Holy Spirit, of which we read in scriptures and might fancy in our imagination, this is a gift we might aspire for and ask for and long for the one gift we should most cherish and desire. The eyes to see that God is with us in the most unusual places and the most unlikely of faces. Of all the power of the Holy Spirit, of which we read in Scripture and we fancy this gift, the ability, the eyes to see that God is with us in this unexpected, unusual, apparently unremarkable place. And if I try to discern the wisdom and the peace of Simeon, I think this is it. That he understands that less than where and when we will be, salvation is about where God is now. Where God is now. Because where God is, salvation is happening. Where Christ is present, salvation is happening. Confronted with the towering realities of evil, we cry for a stop. Right? We must cry for a stop. But rather than smash it all, God walks into it. God walks into it. And he has the patience and enough love for the slow work of revealing hearts and transforming us. A faith that eagerly expects to see the redemption might lose heart when it's so delayed. But a faith that yearns for the presence of the Redeemer will walk through the night and the valley of the shadow of death with the presence of them. And will learn to walk as a child of the light. And it is not that we don't earn and await the redemption of all things. Again, we must. But if our faith doesn't nurture the presence of Christ and the sensibility to incarnation, to God made present here and now, then we may very well miss out on precisely the reality of faith that takes us there to redemption. And that is the hope. 
and the peace in the life of Simeon. I yearn for this quality and this taste of faith. A faith that has the patience and the focus for the small, that has the endurance and the humbleness for life, that recognizes itself in Jesus' words when he says, you fed me, you clothed me, you took me in. When you did it to any of these little ones, you recognized God's presence with us and you were part of it. I don't think such a faith magically transforms Monday morning or that new year wake up. But maybe it shapes the task of faith very differently. And how it shapes our steps from that bed and how it shapes how we meet each other. All the power of the Holy Spirit of which we read in Scripture and we might fancy in our imaginations. This is a gift to cherish. The eyes to see that God is with us in the unlikeliest of places, in the unlikeliest of faces, in the baby, in the widow, and the orphan and the neighbor in the middle of it all. For that God, a God that dares to be with us and touch the reality of our pain and brokenness, that is a God that heals and that redeems. So what will 2023 bring of big things? I don't know. I don't know. How will our faith, our eyes, and our steps be shaped by Emmanuel, by God with us? That's a question we want to make together. That's a practice we want to live into together. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the reality of your lives and to the troubles you bring with you into this new year and the hopes that you carry, that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord, serve the world, serve each other joyfully.